Welcome to Spirit in Action. My name is Mark Helpsmeet, and each week we bring you visits and conversations with people doing healing work for this world, hearing what they're doing and what inspires them and supports them in doing it. Welcome to Spirit in Action. Today's Spirit in Action guest was caught up by a life-transforming spirit, right at an age where many other people are just shifting into a lower gear, ready to coast the last stretch. Not Jennifer Cavanaugh. After years of the normal, study, family, and professional life, she was found by faith, which has included diverse tasks, like running a center for the poor and homeless, setting up microcredit funding programs, and educating people about simplicity and spiritual activism. Part and parcel of that education and inspiration has been a number of books that she's written, and two of the most recent are Heart of Oneness and Practical Mystics. Jennifer Cavanaugh joins us via Zoom from the United Kingdom. Jennifer, welcome back to Spirit in Action. Thank you. Good to be here. And how are things going over? I think you're right in London, aren't you? I'm right in the middle of London, yes. We last talked back in 2013, specifically about microcredit and some other items. The world has changed in the U.S. and in England quite a bit. And Britain has a different leader than used to, and we in the U.S. have a different leader. Could you talk a little bit about how the world feels different to you also in the time of COVID? To be frank, I can't remember what it was like in 2013, but I can tell you how it is now. I live right in the middle of London, and the streets are very, very quiet. We're in the highest level of restriction in the UK. I like quiet streets. I enjoy that but I don't enjoy the fear that goes with the present situation, rising infections and so on. I mean, to be frank, lockdown doesn't feel so bad because as soon as this pandemic hit, I stopped going on public transport and I haven't been into anybody's house and nobody has been in here since last March. I'm used to living alone, but there are differences. (laughs) It feels very different because this is rather forced on us. But, I, you know, I guess I've got used to it, but I miss my family. Actually, that was the hardest part for me as well. We've got seven grandchildren, and I'm a hugging grandfather, and I'm the kind of grandpa that kids love to jump on and roll around with and all that kind of thing. So that was actually the hardest part for me. Well, my first grandchild was born two weeks ago. Oh, my goodness. In France. Mon Dieu, c'est pas possible. (laughs) (laughs) See, but so I can't go and see her. I've met her on Zoom a couple of times, but yes, I find that hard. There's been a change in government at the highest levels as well in the US and in Britain. I'm wondering how that's affected, I guess, the social program that you would advocate for. It felt like a big impact here in the United States with Donald Trump at the helm. Well, we've had a conservative government for some time, just a different prime minister. So the changes have not been that radical. The huge change for us is Brexit, is the UK leaving the European Union. And I'm one of the people that feels heartbroken. I feel very connected to Europe. As I said, my son lives in France and my mother was Russian and we had family all over Europe and we always travel to Europe a lot. And it just feels, I feel European. And I've been told I'm not. (laughs) 
that's sad. You mentioned, Jennifer, how the streets are quieter, lots less traffic with the shutdown. And I know that hasn't been uniform over all of the months that coronavirus has been present. But early on, I had the idea that, well, maybe we will be able to reach our goals for reduction of CO2 because people aren't driving as much and we may actually move to a more simple way of life. One of your books that I've talked to you about previously is Simplicity. Do you feel like COVID has made us more or less simple in our lifestyle? It's certainly there has been a reduction in emissions. That's wonderful. I mean, there's, I still go up to people who are running their car engines and say, will you please switch it off? Hooray for you, Jennifer. <laughs> It is actually illegal to have it running. I don't say that. I I just say, excuse me, would you mind turning your engine off? Simple, I don't know. I mean, people are not going shopping. They're doing everything online. I don't know that that's particularly simple. It's just a different way of doing things. An awful lot of businesses are going to close, have closed. It would be wonderful to think that we could learn from what's going on. I wonder how much we will learn. I think people are still desperate to go back to, quotes normal, whereas I I think there's a phrase here, the new normal, which I think will be very different. I think some people have found it good to have more time with their families, if, if that's what's happened for them, if they're working from home. Some people have found it a complete nightmare. So just very different for different people, really. Well, the main reason I have you here, Jennifer, is because of two of the most recent books that you've written. When I say most recent, I mean within the last two years. You seem to be churning them out at an increasing pace. (laughs) Your fingertips don't seem to be able to stay still. They're fidgeting around and typing up a new book every day. So Heart of Oneness is one of the book, and the other one is Practical Mystics. I just reread Heart of Oneness and read Practical Mystics for the first time this past week. Last time I interviewed you, we talked about The World is Our Cloister, was the book I interviewed you, A Guide to Modern Religious Life. And to some degree, Practical Mystics has some definite overlap with all of them, of course. It seems to me that the best way to introduce people to Jennifer Kavanaugh is to do a little recap of the transition in your life from literary book agent to how you got to be the incredible source for simplicity and spirituality that you are today. So I realize we'll be revisiting things that we talked about back in 2013, but shall will start out. 1997 was a threshold for you. What happened before and after? I worked for nearly 30 years in publishing, and for most of that time, I was very content doing so. But there came a time, I was running my own literary agency, and there came a time when the whole celebrity culture, the bottom line mentality got to me, and I wanted to leave. But I had no idea what I was going to do, and so I stayed put. Ten years previously, 87, my marriage broke up. Another relationship broke up. My daughter got a chronic illness, and how I describe it is that I was cracked open. I think this is true for many people, that in the wake of trauma, they find that they can access another dimension. And that's what happened to me. I was very unconscious. I had absolutely no idea what was going on, but I burst into tears every time I went into a church. And I thought, I've got no choice but to see what this means. So I went to various churches and didn't find anything to answer my need. 
I remember seeing a sign outside a, a Quaker meeting house and without having very much idea of what that meant, I went in and I found peace. And it's not so much what faith, what religion I ended up with. It was the fact that faith overwhelmed me. You know, it isn't a matter of me finding faith, it found me. So I then found that I was able to let go of my career, let go of my literary agency without any idea of what I was going to do. I no longer needed to know because I knew that I would be guided. So I let go, basically. And indeed, I was guided through other people, really. A, a phone call that asked me to run a community or to start up and run a community centre in the East End of London, which is a very poor part. I had no experience of any of that. And it was a complete leap of faith on the part of the people who asked me. And it changed my life. I started leading a completely different life. I, I was working with homeless people on the streets as a volunteer which the Quakers asked me to do. I was running this community centre and that led to other work in prisons and, as you've mentioned, microcredit both in the UK and in Africa. So the before and after was faith. Did your leap into this new life, did it change your relationship with your daughter, with family, brothers, sisters? I don't know. I mean, it sounds like the Jennifer Kavanaugh pre 1997 and the one post-1997 might be quite a different person to relate to. Did it impact positively, negatively? Uh, did it do some kind of chemistry in your familial relationships? My kids, I, I have a son and a daughter, have always been very tactful about differences. They're not interested in religion. They don't have faith themselves. I try not to talk about it too much, but inevitably I talk a lot about Quakers because I spend a lot of time with them. My daughter, as I said, had contracted a serious illness, and so there was a lot of preoccupation with that, really. Yes, I mean, I, I guess so. My mother was alive then, and she did have a faith, and so we were able to relate in that kind of way. And my father died in 96, just as I was finding my faith. And I remember reading something to him when he was dying. And in a moment of lucidity, he said, I should be reading this to you. <laughs> so I found a terrific commonality with the mystic end of my parents' faiths, because my father was a Catholic and my mother was initially a non-practicing Jew, but then she got involved in the Kabbalah, the mystic end of Judaism. So Although we had different labels, we found ourselves very much in the same place. Mm. I had only heard of you referring to her as an agnostic Jew. So it's very interesting for me to hear that she made that transition to a vibrant faith alive in her life. She's descended from Russia? She was born in St. Petersburg, yes. So as a Jew in Russia, frequently there was oppression and at least second class, or you shouldn't be religious anyhow. First of all, they were white Russians, and so they had to leave Russia. Her father was imprisoned by the Bolsheviks. Her parents ended up in Latvia, and they separated. And many of her family, her mother, her grandmother, were killed in concentration camps. So she lived to be 102, and that century, she almost encapsulates the major events of that century, the Russian Revolution and the Second World War and so on. 
Well, as I said earlier, Jennifer, two of your books that I'd like to focus some attention on today are Heart of Oneness, A Little Book of Connection, and Practical Mystics, Quaker Faith in Action. The Practical Mystics, I think, really talks about spirituality for our time, but as it's practiced amongst Quakers and the application that has for the practical and the mystic part, both a spirit-driven, thriving life. And it, most people see those two as poles. Either you know, you're going up on the mountain and sitting with your legs crossed going om, or you're out there making a difference in the world. And it's clear from your writings that you don't see them as opposite ends. You see them as front and back of page. Uh, I don't know. Put it in Jennifer's words. <laughs> Different expressions of the same thing. But everything is rooted, in, to my mind, everything is rooted in spirit. Everything is rooted in the direct relationship with God, which is the mystic relationship. From a Quaker perspective, if, if you're sitting in a Quaker meeting, you're sitting mostly in silence, but it's a silent waiting, and it's a waiting for guidance. It's a waiting for guidance for how to be in the world and where that might take you. And I like to think of that meeting as triangular. So there's the self, the divine, and the other people in the room. And we take that triangle out into the world so that we may be guided by other people, as has happened with me, as well as directly. And so our interaction with other people and our, our need to be guided how to act in the world, it's all part of the same thing. So in the Quaker world, we're really used to thinking of both that mystical rooting and the activism that goes with it. Uh, not that some people don't think of themselves as being on one place on that spectrum, but I think also of engaged Buddhism, which is uh, something that emerged over the last decades, whereas Buddhism frequently was thought of as non-engagement with the world. Yeah. There was the social gospel, as it was known in the early 1900s. Well, it seems to me, I don't know if there's been a change, but all religions, I mean, putting Buddhism aside for a moment, all religions have service at the heart of them. Hinduism, Judaism, Islam, how we look after other people is very much a part of each religion. And I think Buddhism was the one, when I was writing The World is Our Cloister, Buddhism seemed to me the exception, apart from, I think, a, a newer wave of engaged Buddhists from Thich Nhat Hanh onwards and so on. The connection between faith and action came to me as a complete surprise. When I found, when faith found me, when I found the Quakers, what I was looking for was an answer to a question that was going on inside me, my spiritual yearning. I didn't know that it would also restore my youthful idealism. I mean, I'd been very idealistic as a child and, and can remember saying to my parents, well, if people are starving in Africa, why can't we put food, you know, tins of food on a ship and send them over? And they would say, they're there, dear. You know, it's more complicated than that. And I think most people in the world want to make a difference and don't know how to, because we all think that poverty and injustice is too big, too hard, that there's nothing we can do about it. And in coming to Quakers, I found people who were making a difference in small local ways, maybe, but that empowered me to think 
maybe there's something I can do. It was a huge change for me, but it it brought together my youthful idealism and my spiritual yearning. That was very unexpected. When did you lose your youthful idealism? I don't know that I ever really lost it. I guess uh, it just sort of went underground as I was building a career and a family. And as I said, most people felt you couldn't make much of a difference anyway. But until I, I'm rather ashamed to say that until I came to my faith when I was nearly 50, I'd never done any volunteering. I'd never done any marching, any vigils, any anything. I worked and I brought up my family. So this was completely new for me. And I jumped in with both feet. <laughs> well, yes. And including having left your profession, your business. I mean, you sold your business and went on to other things. It doesn't feel to me like you've given up the literary arts completely because of all the books you've written since then. There is some groundwork you did for later life. <laughs> By the way, when I started Northern Spirit Radio back in 2005, I had been searching for what profession I wanted to be in. I had a computer programming company since I moved up to Eau Claire. I knew in 1999, I need to change assistant right. And I resolved to do it within the year, and it took me six years. But mm -hmm. one of the things that helped me move was we call it a clearness committee here in the United States. I had folks from my local Quaker meeting met with me and asked these probing, insightful questions. And at the same time, from two other directions, I got the message of which way to go. Yes. And your change that you're going to sell your company, you're going to be a different person, be a different life path. What were the components of that? Well, I think the fact that, as I said, I realized that I would be guided, which was an extraordinary change in how I saw the world. And then the fact that phone calls, synchronicities, all sorts of things happened to confirm a direction that I wanted to take, but also to push me in directions I had no idea of. I mean, if somebody had said to me 10 years before that I would have done any of the things that I did in the next 20 years, I would never have believed them. <laughs> Was there any particular community or focus within your Quaker meeting that helped free you or nudge you or in some ways inspire you? Yeah, I mean, I didn't have a clearness committee because I was too new to it all. I wouldn't have known about such a thing. I've taken part in several since then for other people mostly. Well, the first thing that I was asked to do by the Quakers was to coordinate the tea runs for homeless people that different meetings in London were running. And I had no idea about tea runs or homelessness <laughs> <laughs> but you're British, so you know tea, right? <laughs> yeah, I know about tea. But I had all, all sorts of preconceptions. I sometimes think that any move forward in my spiritual life has been through dashed preconceptions. This was the first one, and it was mega. I thought that I would be sneered at as a middle-class do-gooder, which might have been near the truth. I thought I might be banged on the head by a druggie wielding a bottle, and of course, none of that happened. And the moment I went up to somebody and said, would you like a cup of tea? It was the beginning of a human relationship. And I realized in that moment that that bundle in the doorway could be me and that there's no such thing as the other. And it was an epiphany for me and it led to everything else that I've done since. 
Well, maybe now is a good time to talk about heart of oneness. Your comment, there is no other. In some ways, I would speak of heart of oneness as it's not a philosophical treatise. It's something deeper than that. Philosophical would be skimming on the surface in some ways. Maybe it's a meditation on oneness. That's maybe the best way for me to describe my experience of it. It certainly, toward the beginning of the book, talks about how we do or don't see that person as other. But then you continue on into the other elements of creation. So certainly doing the tea run on the east side of London got you to not see those people as the other. I'm just going to take wild guess and assume that you are more likely to be labor-oriented than the other side. Are they the other? (laughs) Well, the whole Brexit leaving the European Union has been a very, very divisive event. And it's been very hard for any of us not to think of people who voted the other way as not to think of them as the other. And I don't know how good I am. In fact, I know I'm not very good at engaging people who have very different views from me. I sometimes feel that if people have radically different views, particularly on race, but also with Brexit and so on, that there's no point. I'm not going to change their views. My brother has very different views from me. And we've just learned not to talk about certain things. I'm not sure it's cowardly. Uh, Well, it is possibly, but I, I think I try to relate to people through the things we have in common rather than argue about the things we don't have in common. I know that I and people of my ilk tend to think, well, in terms of heart of oneness, what needs to happen is the people who are Trump supporters need to not see blacks or other minorities, people from Mexico as other. They need to not see gays and lesbians or trans people as other. That's the heart of oneness that we want to lecture to them. My experience is I have a much stronger tendency to other the Trump supporter. One of the things that we did here, it was a kind of a revolutionary effort on my part. My wife and I, right about the time we put up our Biden sign, we had just done a trip through northern Minnesota, and everywhere we saw Trump signs and American flags. And there's a bit of a distaste I have for American flags because there's a message that I have internalized over years of opposing Vietnam War and so on, which says people put up American flags are saying we're better than the rest of the world, American exceptionalism, right? I knew that for a lot of the people, if I was listening to the message that they were trying to express by their American flag, it was probably something like, I love this place that gave me birth. I love the family here. I love so much of the richness in my life. And so when we put up our Biden sign, we also installed some American flags on our property to say, we can be with you. We can hear you. That's very nice. It was an attempt for me to step beyond. What's the equivalent of doing that in Britain? Goodness. Well, we don't tend to have flags, I'm glad to say. (laughs) (laughs) I think a lot of the people who voted to leave the European Union were trying to regain what they saw as Britain's greatness, which was never 
how they saw it, I think. You know, we were not, we didn't do things on our own. We did it with our colleagues. We did it with the Americans and the Europeans. But there's this kind of brave England doing stuff on its own view. I don't know what I could do to try and mend fences. I mean, in a sense, we've left Europe. So, quotes, they've won. And we have to put up with it, put up with the results, but so do they. it's, It's very, it's just terribly sad. And it just feels like a terrible loss. And I'm very impressed by your example. And I shall ponder what there might be that we could do to try and mend fences a bit. Folks, we are speaking with Jennifer Cavanaugh. I want to warn you up front that there are more than one Jennifer Cavanaugh in the world. And Jennifer, let's make a comment about that because I want to point people to your website. We have it on northernspiritradio.org to jennifercavanaugh.co.uk. That's the website. And you come via Northern Spirit Radio. And how do you spell Kavanaugh? I wanted to put an extra U in there. Americans do for some reason, yes. It ends with N-A-G-H. But come via northernspiritradio.org and we'll have a link to Jennifer Kavanaugh, the one who is in London, as opposed to the one who's in Michigan. Tell me about you and your twin. (laughs) Well, I realized some years ago that there were two of us writing with the same name and I didn't bother too much about it. And it was only when I did a Google and I found that they had mixed up her birth date, my biography, her photo and books of both of us on the same page that I thought I've got to do something about this. So I contacted Google and they've been very helpful and I hope it's sorted. And I thought it it might be fun to write to her to say I was doing this. So we've had a little bit of a correspondence just in the last few weeks, actually. And she's a professor, but she's Rand Corporation as part of her affiliation and not yours. How many military histories and analysis have you done? (laughs) None at all. (laughs) Uh, I want to refer to something that you said earlier about my writing a lot. There's a word prolific, which people often apply to me, and it's begun to feel a bit like an insult, a bit like, gosh, you don't half churn them out. And I suppose it took me until I was in my 50s to write because I was using my creative energies working with other writers in my career. And I'm, you know, making up for lost time. Well, folks, we are speaking with Jennifer Kavanaugh. JenniferKavanaugh.co.uk is the website. Links on NordenSpiritRadio.org, along with a whole lot of information, all of our guests the last 15 years, including our interview with Jennifer back in 2013. You can listen to all those interviews, find links to the people. Please post comments and rate the programs once you listen to them. Also, there's a donate button, which is how our full-time work is supported. It's by your donations, not by corporations and not by government, but because you want to make sure it continues. So you can support us that way. I especially like it when you support local media. Local media as an alternative to the globalized media has such a valuable role to play in the community. In the United States, that means that Northern Spirit radio programs are carried on something like 42, 43 stations nationwide, community radio stations. 
And those are typically run by volunteers. They're people deeply rooted in the community. So please start off by supporting them and then consider supporting Northern Spirit Radio. There's so many wonderful causes to support. And Jennifer's involved with half of them in the world. I imagine she's <laughs> one way or another, she's lifting up that engagement with them. And in her book, Practical Mystics and in Heart of Oneness, she makes the spiritual and practical case for why our circle can be wider. Jennifer, back in, I don't know, it was 2011 or so, a study came out. The question was, they were trying to say, what are characteristics or identities of liberal and conservative? What other characteristics does this then imply or entail? What was specifically interesting for me was how they defined liberal conservative. They said, it's how big your circle of we is. How big your circle of we is. So if we is just the white people who live in my town who are descended from people in England, that's one circle. And they have to be part of my church. They can't be Catholic. They have to be Anglican, right? In Heart of Oneness, it seems to me that you're saying my circle isn't this big. It's arms wide open. And it isn't limited to any people. It isn't limited to people plants, animals. And so I want to talk a little bit about how you stretch your arms so wide and what implications that has for what we live in the world. So start me out. First step in Heart of Oneness, our arms are closed here. We're trying to open them a bit. What's the first step? Engaging with people in a random kind of way, I think. I spend and particularly now when I'm not allowed to see a lot of the, my close friends, but I've always done it, always in the last 20 years, talking to random strangers. I mean, I talk to the security guards. I talk to the gardeners in the park. I talk to people at bus stops. I only engage if people want to engage. I'm not trying to bully them into some kind of conversation they don't want to have. You're more noble than I am then. Because <laughs> <laughs> I, I think my wife has the opinion that I sometimes engage people who don't really want to be engaged. But I love it. I mean, at the moment, it's my social life, but it's been a source of great joy to me just to find out about its curiosity about other people's lives, about how people live, how to... The, the work that they do, the hours that they have to work. I mean, th th there's um, outside a particular house that I pass quite often in the early morning when I go for my constitutional. He just stands there all day, just this extraordinarily boring life. And it's very, very cold just to be standing there all day. So I talk to him. So I think first step, yes, just realizing that there are people well outside your cozy circle. So once you widened your circle a little bit right there in London, had you had to confront your definition of who we was and who did it open to include? You said as a young person, you had a, a I guess, enthusiastic embrace of the world that you maybe limited a bit while you're raising your family and doing your job. Did you find yourself including the gays and the trans or the blacks or the, um, did you find yourself having your arms pried open? Well, I think sort of while I was narrowing my life in that way, if that's how we see it, I didn't engage all that much. I had a few friends who were gay. I met one trans person, Jan Morris, the, the travel writer. I met her in my publishing career, a few black people, but I mean, it wasn't 
I didn't go out of my way. I mean, it was just if, if I met people, I met people. Also, some of the time I was living in a, a rural village, which was very homogenous. And my husband and I made the decision that we didn't want to bring up our kids in a place that was so narrow, that was so white, that was so unlike the rest of the world. So that, that was a very conscious decision to move out of that place. But I think it was only really when I started doing some volunteering, when I got much more involved with people who were living very different lives. As I said, I had all these preconceptions. I mean, when my first trip to a developing country was to Bangladesh in the late 90s, I got a Churchill Fellowship to go and study microcredit there. I remember being asked by the interviewers, you know, um, are you ready for the culture shock? And I said, well, I can't keep my blinkers on forever. But in fact, the culture shock was coming back. When I went there, I didn't have a culture shock. Yes. It was quite extraordinary. And I remember saying to Mohammed Yunus, who's the guy who started microcredit, um, I didn't know what poverty was till I came here. And he was very angry. And he said, being homeless in a cold country is much harder. <laughs> yes. Actually, that's the experience of so many Peace Corps volunteers going to a third world country and a developing nation and living there. There's a lot of challenges. It's a, a learning curve, but it's an exciting learning curve where most of the Peace Corps volunteers I knew experienced it was when they came back to the U.S. And all of a sudden, we see our country differently. And you see all the stuff that we, we had taken just for granted as part of our lives. All of a sudden, they're laid bare in our vision, just how wasteful, how crazy, how disconnected we are. How spoiled. Well, def definitely, definitely. Uh, particularly running water is the one that stays with me. <laughs> yes. Being able to turn on the tap and being able to drink that water, that is such a privilege. Well, in Heart of Oneness, again, by Jennifer Cavanaugh, folks, and who's with us here today for Spirit in Action, you transition not just about opening our arms and embracing other people, you go into other species, the DNA that links us and so on. Could you talk a little bit about those widening circles as you've seen them and why do we have to care about animals, trees, poison ivy? <laughs> well, I began to realize that the natural world has so much to teach us. There is so much commonality among species we need each other. I mean, the, the one that everybody knows is that we need plants to breathe in and they need, they need us, that kind of commonality, that mutual need. And the mutuality that's inherent in the created world is something I didn't know the half of. And when I started to look at it, I was absolutely staggered. Staggered at the hidden links of, for instance, the roots of trees the roots of mushrooms. I mean, mushrooms, it's quite extraordinary. They have this underground connection that goes for miles. But also in terms of the animals that we have much more contact with, either as pets or in farms, or indeed as our food, it became important to me to look at how we related to animals I think we've moved quite a long way from feeling that we have to have dominion over the animal world. But I think that we need to have more of a sense of a shared creatureliness 
that we are also animals and they are non-human animals. The animal kingdom, again, there are some, the primates, which are closest to us, but you are relating to every creature, insects. I've been a vegetarian since 1976, and so my connection and my passion, compassion for animals, I think has grown because of that. I still kill mosquitoes, though. I do, too. <laughs> well, there's a question, and I, as I was engaging with Heart of Oneness, I was also trying to confront my own thinking that I, somehow I'm a pure, enlightened being. In India, in particular, you can find Jains and other sects that are so very thoughtful about their relationship to other creatures. And part of me says, if we didn't kill any animals or any plants, we would all die because we need them for food. And you mention in the book, you know, Native cultures, Native American, I'm used to thinking of as thanking an animal for the spirit before eating it and so on. In India, there's a whole culture where just thanking the animal for its spirit was not enough. And then like the Jains. So could, could you talk about some of those thoughts, approaches to animals and other creatures and how careful we can be and whether that is from the divine or not? Because again, you and I are both rooted in this expectation of how the divine will want us to act in the world. I was quite careful to suggest that there are many different approaches rather than say thou shalt or shalt not. Like you, I'm a vegetarian, but I'm not a vegan. And I do question that from time to time. I was absolutely thrilled to read today of a farm that has started a very enlightened way of dealing with their cattle so that they keep the calves with them. So they milk them, but they also allow the calves to have their mother's milk. So I think a more enlightened way of dealing with the dairy industry would, would make me feel better. The way the meat industry is dealt with is frankly shocking. I don't know if it is in the States, but it certainly oh, is. Oh, certainly in the States. Yes. We're worse I mean, than anyone else. I mean, really appalling cruelty that goes on. So yes, the Jains, I guess, are at the one extraordinary extreme where they will be careful not to tread on an ant, will wear masks so that they don't interfere with the insects that are flying and, and so on. But a number of ecologists, a number of people who work with animals on a daily basis are quite clear that the animal kingdom is part of the food chain. You know, it's not just humans that eat animals, animals eat animals. It is part of what goes on. It's rather sentimental to imagine that um, everyone behaves better than us. I'm not sure that that's completely true. But we have a consciousness, and that gives us responsibilities for how we behave. What I found very helpful in some of the people I was reading was the notion of fairness. It's not to take more out of the created world than we give. So it's a matter of balance. It's a matter of only taking what we need and certainly not wasting it. One of the concepts I heard that I think is very helpful is reciprocity. Yes. So f the fairness can be, I get this from the world and here's what I give back to the world, as opposed to it's all me, me, me. 
which our culture certainly raises up, you know, capitalism at its worst is completely self-centered, individualistic, and does not care about any other person or creature. One of the things that is most important to me is the fact that everything, but everything is interconnected, that you cannot damage another human being, another animal, or the earth without it damaging you. It's like a domino effect. You mentioned about sentimentality, the idea that being compassionate as we are can devolve, I think, into some kind of a sentimentality. I have a feeling that many of my closest friends would place compassion as the primary virtue. That doesn't have, doesn't seem to be room in the same space for those who view nature bloody in tooth and claw and compassion as the highest virtue, that those people don't seem to fit in the same room. How do you reconcile that in your mind or your thoughts or your your understanding? Well, I think that it was useful for me to be reminded that nature is red in tooth and claw that there is a lot of killing. I mean, you only have to watch nature programmers and it's all about killing, sex and killing. But there is extraordinary altruism in the animal kingdom, both within species and between them, which scientists find it quite hard to explain that it might be because of reciprocity. It might be because of a a link, because two animals of different species have lost their mothers or whatever. But that there is altruism, there is even self-sacrifice in the animal kingdom. So I suppose it's both and. For us and for them, we have to recognise that both go on. And it's our choice how we find the balance and how we can make compassion the most important part of how we live our lives. I mean, compassion and community have the same root in calm together. And it is in working together that we make good things happen. Folks, I really want to recommend that you read Heart of Oneness, a little book of connection. One of the virtues, by the way, that I feel you bring to things, Jennifer, is that you don't write 500-page tomes, (laughs) 60 pages or so, and you touch on an incredible amount of both depth and simplicity. You, You hit a number of topics, number of perspectives, not skipping over them, but it feels like 20,000 leagues under the sea. You're you're going to the deep places, but you don't take 20,000 pages to do it. So I admire that virtue that you have of going deep without being voluminous. Thank you. So Heart of Oneness is one of the books. Practical Mystics is another one that I highly recommend. But those are only two of the books that Jennifer Kavanaugh has produced. Let me just mention a few other names. One is The World is Our Cloister, A Guide to Modern Religious Life, which I interviewed Jennifer about back in 2013. Simplicity, A Little Book of Unknowing, I think came out around 2018. Journey Home, Call of the Bellbird, The Emancipation of Bee and The Silence Diaries are two different cases. Could you mention a word about those two books, Jennifer? Yes, they're novels. Novels, fiction has always been my first love. It's what I mostly dealt with when I was an agent. 
And if anyone had said that if I was going to write, I would have assumed that I would write fiction. And it's extraordinary to me that it took me as long as it did to get to my first novel, which was, I think, in 2015 or so. They do feel like one's children. (laughs) They do come from a place that is much less conscious. I mean, I knew a lot in theory. I've worked with a lot of novelists. I knew that characters had a life of their own and they, they took off, but I didn't know the half of it. I didn't have a clue as to the control that you have to let go of. The Emancipation of B came to me as an image. I had no idea what it meant. I started writing something as a woman and it didn't work. I started writing the first person, it didn't work. And then I realized it was a man and that the image was actually the last scene of the book. And I won't say too much more about it because I find with my fiction that it, I I like to think of it as revealing itself gradually. But what I will say is it's really about a man who self-isolates, which is quite extraordinary given that it was written some years ago. And The Silence Diaries, which came out last year, is narrated by a fool. Now, I belong to a community of fools. We're not clowns, we don't paint our faces white but we do wear red noses and wear costumes. And this book is about a young couple living in contemporary London who both have secret lives, not secret from each other, but secret from the world, as well as their obvious way of living. So it's about secrets and lies and about voices and silence. I too love fiction as a way of learning. Actually, I like science fiction particularly because suspension of some of our beliefs or our assumptions about life help us because we step outside of our life, we can look in on our life. So I didn't understand the United States until I lived in Togo and I somehow don't understand my current reality until I live in alternate reality. I was curious when I read The Emancipation of B. Do you know the book, The Story of B by Daniel Quinn? Do you know that one? No, I don't. Oh, you you have to. Well, his first book that I encountered was called Ishmael. Yes. Yeah, a telepathic, a telepathic gorilla who's leading the way to ecological sanity, I guess. That's one way of saying it. But The Story of B is the next book I read of his. And so you two are on a, a similar line. I think you probably want to learn from one another. Oh, interesting. <laughs> I just want to say something about science fiction. I've always steered clear of it. I've never read science fiction or fantasy, and my kids both do. And I decided in the last few months that I really need to open my mind to it. And so I've been given, I've been asked my kids where I should start, and they've sent me a couple of books. So I hope I'm going to try and broaden my horizons a bit. Stranger in a Strange Land, Robert Heinlein, is a beautiful place to start. I don't think I understood Christianity until I understood what happened in that book. Uh Uh-huh, okay. And I don't think I understood racism until I read that book. And it's not about racism as we normally think of it. So that's one of the reasons it's so instructive for me. The other part of creativity that Jennifer Kavanaugh is bringing to the world is games. 
you found a way to engage with the deep end by playing together. So could you tell me a little bit both about Journey Home, the game, and the prayer game? Journey Home came from the book called Journey Home, which was originally called something else, but we changed it to fit in with the game. In writing that book, I looked at the different facets of home from family to community to nationality to home in oneself and so on. And I woke up one morning and I thought this would make a board game. Now, I never in a million years thought I would create a board game, but I invited some young friends round to do some playing and they helped me create it. That was some years ago now and it's you know, people are playing it all over the place. They're playing it in day centres and hostels and families and with friends, Quaker meetings, all sorts of places. The prayer game I created a couple of years ago. I was doing a workshop on unknowing, as it happened, and I saw to my horror that I'd signed up to do a five-day course. I thought it was a weekend, and I thought, goodness gracious, how am I going to fill this time? I was in any case going to do a session on prayer, which is something that I find a very difficult concept. And I came across the idea of something called Worship Rummy, which wasn't actually created, but there was a sort of worksheet about it at at Woodbrook, which is a Quaker study centre. And I thought, I'll have a go. And I spent the most wonderful, rich evening writing 54 words or phrases that might mean prayer to somebody. And we played it in the workshop and somebody said to me, you should produce this. And since I'd had the experience of Journey Home and I knew a really good games maker, I knew where to go. So that's been great fun, sending that off all over over the place, including the States. So folks, if you go to jennifercavanagh.co.uk, you can find links to this kind of thing journeyhomegame.com is one of the websites to get to one of those games and theprayergame.com is another but again on northernspiritradio.org you'll find a link to this Jennifer Kavanaugh not the one in Michigan you'll be able to track her down one last thing Jennifer before we sign off but I suspect you haven't totally shut down that you're using social media and other means to engage with people give workshops give presentations. What have you been doing the last six, seven, eight, nine months? Well, I was lucky enough to have just finished about 18 months worth of interviews for a new book. So I spent the first six weeks of lockdown pulling that book together. It'll come out next June and it's called Let Me Take You By The Hand, True Tales of London Streets. So after that, I was rather at a loss and felt very bored. I really don't feel happy unless I have a book to write. But I've been running workshops over the last 10 years or so, mostly based on on my books, but other things as well, a lot of retreats. And some of those I'm, I'm beginning to do on Zoom. I prefer not doing them on Zoom, but it's the only way that they can be done. And also planning for a couple in person for next year. So if I have some work to do, I feel this is quite manageable. And one last, one last thing. (laughs) That is, at the end of Practical Mystics, the last, I think, four pages of the book, you act 
you actually share the story of John Woolman, who in some ways is perhaps the quintessential deep person within the mystic, that connection that you speak about in Practical Mystics, and he's engaged with the world in the perfect way. John Woolman lived 250 plus years ago, and I was looking for a Practical Mystic of the past 50 years, someone who maybe you and I walked alongside who somehow captured in that same way that John Woolman does in his work against slavery, his connection with the Native Americans, the Indians, and his concern for the poor, and how he did that out of such a contemplative, spirit-led basis. Can you name that person next to you, that your fellow traveler who somehow has inspired you as a practical mystic? Well, I do think that what went on in South Africa, the truth and reconciliation process, Desmond Tutu and Mandela too, who also had a, a strong faith, was hugely inspiring. But, you know, I have friends who do extraordinary work from that contemplative place. It's, it doesn't have to be huge. A friend who took his family to live in Zimbabwe when they were very small children to run a centre, community centre, a very hard thing to do in a, a poor country with small children. But people who give a kidney to a stranger, people who give blood, of course. I suppose most of the names that I think of are further back. I think of people who hid the Jews in the Second World War, people like that. There is a lot of self-sacrifice. There is a lot of kindness. I think we forget that human beings are essentially kind. Actually, this last year has brought out a lot of kindness towards people who are finding it hard. That's why I prefer the word mankind or humankind rather than humanity, because it's got the kind in there. <laughs> yes. Well, Jennifer, you write so inspirationally, and I hope that people will access not only your growing assortment of books, including the one that's coming out very soon. Let me take you by the hand. Folks, you want to track things down for Jennifer Cavanaugh, go to jennifercavanaugh.co.uk and you'll find a, a link to her links on nordenspiritradio.org. Again, for both your books, for your speaking, for your centeredness, for taking transformation in your life and then being able to share it with other people in such an open and gentle way that you do and for being able to turn it into games. I want to thank you so much and then joining us here today for Spirit in Action. Thank you so much. And folks, again, links on NordenSpiritRadio.org. Follow that, read some of these books, get the games, and join us next week for Spirit in Action. The theme music for this program is Turning of the World, performed by Sarah Thompson. Check out all things Spirit in Action on NorthernSpiritRadio.org. Guests, links, stations, and a place for your feedback, suggestions, and support. Thanks for listening. I'm Mark Helpsmeet, and I hope you find deep roots to support you to grow steadily toward the light. This is Spirit in Action. With every voice, with every song, 